The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So we all, we all hate injustice. Growing up as a child, one of the things you quickly learn to say is, that's not fair. That's not fair that my, my friend gets to stay up late and I don't. That's not fair. My brother got a bigger slice of cake than I did. And in our tiny worlds, as we're growing up, that feels like the height of injustice, doesn't it? But just as children learn to say, that's not fair, so parents learn to respond with, life isn't fair. And don't kids love that response? Because, but the little injustices that you're facing as a child are preparing you for the great injustices you will see as an adult. And as we grow older, we continue to care about the injustices we face, the times we're wronged, but we're, we're also outraged at the injustices we see around the world. Uh, at least we should be. So the poverty people live in. 1.3 billion people living on less than a pound a day. One billion of those are children. That's not fair. Or the injustice of Hamas, murdering, beheading, doing unspeakable things to those attending a music festival. You, you wonder, will justice ever truly be done? Or in, in our country, even this week, the, the, um, Horizon post office scandal comes back into the news and you think, what a horrendous injustice against those post office workers. Everywhere you look, there seems to be injustice. And this leads perhaps to the biggest objection, not just to Christianity, but to the idea that there is a good God who is ruling over the world. Because look at the world, that there can't be a good God if there's all this injustice. And, and we think, well, if I was God, I would end the suffering. So either God's not good or maybe God's not powerful. There's nothing he can do. That, that's how the argument goes. Back when I was a pastor, I used to visit year six in the local primary school to talk about faith and, and do Q&A, answer their questions. And often we would spend the entire lesson just talking about suffering and injustice and why God allows it. If God is so very good and so very powerful, as you say, why doesn't he do something to end the injustice? Even if you've never asked that question yourself, you've been asked it by someone else. And it's not a new question. So this, this is, you know, the first sermon of a new year. And I never know quite what to preach for a new year sermon. You know, is it something inspirational to get you back into Bible reading for 2024 or, or a powerful reminder of God's promises? Well, in comparison to that, Habakkuk can seem kind of intense. 
But I've, I've chosen Habakkuk, and, and what I love about this book is that it gives us permission to speak honestly with God, which is important because it's a new year. Yes, that will bring new mercies and new comforts and joys. It will also bring new challenges and perhaps new sufferings and new questions. And Habakkuk equips us to deal with those questions. We can be uncomfortable sometimes as Christians with questions, especially questions that aren't answered straight away. But Habakkuk invites us to sit in the uncomfortable and to talk to God about the uncomfortable. Because God can cope with our questions. So as we enter Habakkuk's world this morning, we're entering into a world of pain and injustice as, as he wrestles with the seeming indifference of God to horrific injustice. So to explore the passage this morning, we're going to have three points. And our first one, oh, there we go, let's catch up. Our first one is this, when violence is everywhere. When violence is everywhere. So, first one, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. So first question, well, who is this Habakkuk? He's what's called a minor prophet. That doesn't mean his message is unimportant. It means his book is short. And his book is in the Old Testament. That means we're before the time of Jesus. We're about 600 years before Jesus was born. And when Habakkuk's writing, the nation of Israel, where he is, has been on a broadly downward spiral for 300 years or so. That the peak for Israel had been the rule of King David, the shepherd boy who became king, who received all those wonderful promises from God. He was succeeded by his son Solomon, who started well, but then began to turn away from God. And after he died, that the kingdom split into two. And then the, the southern kingdom, where Habakkuk is fo- focused, there's a succession of good kings and bad kings. And, and some good kings who kind of restore the worship of God and try to address some of the injustices of the land, but then more bad kings who all seem to be worse than their predecessors. And when Habakkuk is writing, the king is one of those bad kings. His name is King Jehoiakim son of King Josiah. And this is a summary the Bible gives us of his reign. It says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he rules for 11 years. He's king when Habakkuk's writing. And have a listen as well, just to some verses from Jeremiah 22. These words were spoken by a different prophet, Jeremiah, to the same king, Jehoiakim, and it just sets the scene for what Habakkuk's world is like. So Jeremiah 22 says to the king, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? It was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, 
and for practicing oppression and violence. So that's Habakkuk's king. This is Habakkuk's world. And when the king is like that, enslaving his neighbors, shedding innocent blood, practicing oppression and violence, when the king lives like this, the other leaders of the nation follow suit. So violence rules and reigns in Habakkuk's Israel. And that's what this book is all about. Habakkuk is, is seeing this all around him and he's crying out to God for justice, but God doesn't seem to care. Now in our passage, verses two and three, Habakkuk asks God two questions. The questions are how long and why? And we'll come back to the questions themselves in our second point. But just as he asks those questions, look at some of the language he uses to describe the situation. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? So this word, violence, that's the the summary of everything that's going on. It's the, the best description he's got. And he follows it up with three pairs of words in, in verse 3. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? So injustice and wrongdoing. Then he says destruction and violence. So violence again are before me. And there is strife and conflict abound. So strife and conflict. All these words, you don't want to live in this kind of world. But that word violence, it comes six times in, in Habakkuk. That's quite a lot for a short book. And when the word violence is used, it means things have got pretty bad. First time it comes up in the Bible is uh, Genesis chapter 6. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And that violence was enough to prompt God to flood the world. So th- this word violence, it, it covers... Physical violence, blows to the body, murder is included by this word. Jeremiah accused the king of shedding innocent blood. That's covered by this word violence. But it's not just violence to the body, it's it's the violence of injustice. Where you're you're taking away the rights of the, the poor and the weak, holding them down in the dust so they can't get up. That's violence. It's the violence of abusive words used to make people live in fear and shame and to feel like they can do nothing and they're worth nothing. That's what life was like under this king. And let's look at verse 4 as well. The outcome of all this violence, he says, Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So the law is paralyzed. You you phone the police. They can't do anything. Burglaries in our country, apparently about 5% are solved and the offender brought to justice. You could say in that sense, the law is paralyzed. But, But here in Habakkuk, the situation's worse. It's not that you phone the police and they can't help because no DNA evidence was found or even because they don't have enough officers. No, the picture in Habakkuk is phoning the police and they won't help because they are in cahoots with the criminals. There's something despair-inducing about 
corruption. Because normally when there's an injustice, you want to get it corrected by those in authority. But here in Habakkuk, those in authority are the ones behind the injustice. So we're told in verse 4, justice never prevails. Justice is perverted. Two ways of saying the same thing. The wicked hem in the righteous, operating in a culture where they have no fear of repercussions. They can act openly. They seem to dramatically outnumber those who are trying to do good. So Habakkuk, it, it begins with this bleak situation. Violence is everywhere. And this is true in our world as well, isn't it? This book is remarkably contemporary. You just need to turn on the news. Injustice and violence rip through our world. Terrorism and war, people trafficking and modern day slavery, knife crime in the UK. Stories over New Year of a, of another teenager knifed. Gun crime in the US. Abuse, whether that be sexual abuse or domestic abuse or child abuse. Poverty, malnourishment, oppression. The violence of, of cancer or another disease ravaging the body all of which lead to death every day. Violence is everywhere in our world. And the danger for us, particularly when so much information is thrown at us on the news and we have cameras in every part of the world telling us about the latest atrocities, the danger for us is looking out there and seeing compassion, having compassion fatigue when we hear so much about the injustice and violence of the world and we can't cope with the sheer volume of it, we, we can become numb to the reality of what's happening all around us. Violence is everywhere in our world. Habakkuk's world is, is still very much alive today. And for many of us, that injustice and violence isn't just out there, it isn't just that world, it permeates to in here, into our lives. This violence and, and our response, our, our helplessness in the face of this violence, it is what must drive us as Christians to our knees with the words, how long, on our lips. How long, O oh Lord? That sets the scene for Habakkuk. That's Habakkuk's world, that's our world. But that's not actually the full depth of the problem. Violence everywhere is bad enough, but that's only half of it. For Habakkuk, the, the real issue is that violence is everywhere, but at the same time, God is nowhere. Or so it seems. And so this is our second point, when God is nowhere. So Habakkuk asks God those two questions. Look at verse 2 with me. The first question is how long? The second question is why? And they're good questions. They're good questions when you're waiting for something. Because it's easier to wait for something when we know how long we have to wait and what is the cause of the delay. So imagine you're sitting in an airport 
and your flight is delayed and you look up at the, the flight board, the departure board, and that says on time, on time, on time, and you find your one delayed. And there's that sense of frustration. How long do I have to wait? Is the delay going to be 30 minutes? Okay, that's bearable. Annoying, but bearable. Or is the delay six hours? Knowing that it's going to be six hours, you prepare yourself for the wait. So how long is an important question when you're waiting for something? And the other question you want to, you want to be able to answer is why? Why do I, why is there the delay? Why do I have to wait? Is it weather conditions? Is it a previous flight that was delayed? Has the, the pilot not turned up for, for work? You, you can last longer, I think, with a greater understanding of the cause of the delay. And this is how Habakkuk is praying to God. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? So he's been crying out for some time already. That's implied, isn't it? He's been praying and God's not answering his prayers. It, It feels like God's not hearing him. So he asks how long, but then he asks why? Okay, God, if you're not going to answer me directly, if you're not going to do something, why is this happening? Why is there all this injustice? Why are you letting this happen? Why are you making me watch? Verse 3, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? So Habakkuk's not holding back as he calls out to God. He's asking his questions honestly. And as we we read and we feel the honesty of Habakkuk's language, we realize it's okay for us to feel like this sometimes. It's okay for us to voice these feelings to God in prayer. The Bible is full of, of godly people who love God, saying to God, I have no idea what you're doing, and I don't like it. So so Psalm 13, he accuses God of forgetting him. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? God, you've forgotten me. How long are you going to keep forgetting me? Or, Or Job chapter 10, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you, Lord, to oppress me? to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? That's what Job says. He says, God, you are oppressing me. God, you are despising me. God, you prefer the wicked to me. You show favor to them. Can't quite believe he's allowed to say that. Jeremiah chapter 20, he cries out to God, O Lord, you have deceived me. And I was deceived. You've tricked me, God. Well, back to Job chapter 30. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. He he says that to God. You're cruel. You're persecuting me. And so we see from all this that when we feel like this, we have permission from God to tell him. It's okay 
for us to voice these feelings to God in prayer. Now, we're on holy ground when we do so. Habakkuk's questions are are not irreverent. They, They come in the context of faith. That there's a difference between bitter cynicism and believing confrontation. Bitter cynicism, it makes the complaints. It doesn't wait for an answer. Believing confrontation makes complaints to God and will not move until there is an answer. So there's a a big difference between Habakkuk or Job or any of us crying out to God from a heart of faith that is confused by God's seeming inaction. There's a big difference between that and, and the skeptic coldly accusing God as a way to score points. Prayers expressing perplexity are appropriate when they come in the context of faith. So have you got questions of God? Have you got an argument against God? God, I'm not happy with what you're doing. I I don't like the way this is happening. Either like Habakkuk on the the big scale that we've talked about, the the injustice and violence across the world, or, or like Job on a personal level, looking at your own life and how events have unfolded. Why, God, have you let this happen to me? This sickness, this bereavement, this circumstance. I've sought to be a faithful Christian, yet here I am. Why, God? I don't like it. Why have you forgotten me? So perhaps you're confused or perhaps you're angry. God knows how we're feeling. And God wants us to ask those questions of him. Because what's the alternative? If if you don't want to ask those questions, you have to pretend you haven't got those questions. And and your life kind of gets split into two. You've got your church self who's happy and positive and knows all the things to say because perhaps you've been doing it long enough. But that's not real. And you become increasingly kind of detached over time because we can't really operate like that. And then you have your private self who grows increasingly bitter and angry because you won't talk to God about what's bothering you. And when that's the case, you can't grow in your faith because the only way to grow in your faith is through relationship with God. But if you talk to him, you have to talk about your anger. And and the, the two lives become increasingly separate. It's okay for Christians to bring our confused questions to God. In fact, it's necessary to bear our hearts before him in brutal honesty. You're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. So be honest before God when he feels like he is nowhere. And and Christians, just as an aside, we can get scared if people around us asks these questions sometimes. Perhaps non-Christians wrestling with how can there be a good God when you look at the world and the way it is or they look at their own life and the way it's crumbling and and sometimes we feel we're on the back foot and defensive. We, We don't need to be. It's okay for them to have those questions. Encourage them to talk to God about it. And sometimes 
Other Christians ask these questions, and, and as Christians, then we can panic because, well, we don't want questions like that floating around. We worry that the doubt could be contagious. We, we either want them to put their question back in the box or we rush to some theologically correct answer without really acknowledging the pain behind the question. Can we cope with this kind of honesty in church? If, the, if there's one place in the world you should be able to be honest, it's, it's church, isn't it? Church should be the place where we can be most honest about how we're feeling. Church must be a place where we can wrestle with questions and acknowledge that they are hard and sometimes we won't have neat answers. It must be a place where it's okay to say, God, it feels like you are nowhere. All of us, when we are Christians long enough, will face situations when violence is everywhere and God seems nowhere. So violence is everywhere, when God is nowhere. Our final point this morning, when Jesus was here. So there's no big answer today. There's no big theological solution in the first four verses to Habakkuk's pain. No big revelation from God that answers all our questions. And Habakkuk doesn't get any answers at this stage in the book. But I want us to see, before we finish this morning, that Jesus has walked this road. Jesus has faced these questions. He knows what it's like. So think back to Jesus and his life. When was violence everywhere? Well, most supremely, on the cross. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, although he had done no violence, violence was done to him. Psalm 22 describes the anguish. He says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. A bit more of Psalm 22. This is Old Testament stuff, but it's it's a psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. So it's Jesus' story. And he goes on. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me, my mouth is dried up, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. The greatest injustice in the history of humanity, violence by men against their creator God. A whip on his back, a crown of thorns on his head, nails through his wrists and feet. Words hurled at him like vicious blows, and in death a spear in his side. For Jesus on the cross, violence was everywhere. He knows what that feels like, the greatest injustice. But also for Jesus on the cross, God was nowhere. 
This is again Psalm 22. Listen to how it sounds like Habakkuk. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Father God, you're not hearing my cries. You're not answering my prayers. That's how Jesus felt on the cross. Now, I I know that to say God is nowhere is theologically incorrect. The point is that that is how it feels. Yet for Christ on the cross, it wasn't just that God felt distant. God was distant. God did forsake Jesus on the cross. So we don't have a distant, far-off God who looks on our suffering with injustice it looks on our suffering with indifference. We have a God who came and suffered and died, so he knows what it's like for violence to be everywhere, and he knows what it's like for God to seem to be nowhere. Whatever you feel about the injustice in the world around you or in your own world, and whatever you feel about God's seeming distance when you cry out to him, Jesus knows what's that, what's that's like. We don't have a distant, far-off God who looks on our suffering with indifference. And he knows what it's like, not just to be, to, not just to feel forsaken by God, but to be forsaken by God. We often say to our children, your feelings are real, but they may not be true. You're experiencing this feeling, this emotion, but it's not quite telling you the truth right now. For us, we can feel forsaken by God. We can feel forgotten by God. But if we are Christians, we are not forsaken. Never forgotten. See, Jesus suffered violence on the cross. Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross so that we do not have to be. So that we never can be. On the cross, Jesus truly was separated from his Father. God is three in one. Three persons united in love from the beginning of time, from eternity itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But on that, on the cross, that relationship was split while Jesus took the punishment for our sins. Because actually we, we deserve that separation from God. We, we deserve for God to turn a deaf ear to our cries because we are people who have perpetrated injustice. And we are people who have committed violence whether that be through our words or our actions or our thoughts and desires. We deserve the the judgment and condemnation, but, but Jesus took that on himself, on our behalf, so that for all who believe in him, however far we might feel from God, we will never truly be separated from him again. Those feelings are real, but in Christ they are not true. So violence may seem everywhere, but God is not nowhere. Because of the work of Jesus, nothing can separate us 
from God's love. And that's the promise of God that you can hold on to in 2024.